I wonder how many of you have done the tent work that I set you yesterday of reading on through the book of Nehemiah, to which I now invite you to turn. In case I should forget to encourage you to do it again tonight, I will say it now. Would you like to tomorrow read through chapter 13 that we'll be looking at? And then you can, in your spare time, read the book of Galatians, which we'll also be referring to. It's a Bible week, you know. We're in Nehemiah chapter 8, which we'll read together now. The references to battle and warfare are very much behind them at this time, and they're beginning to see themselves established as a community within the city. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood several of his friends on the right hand <laughs> and the left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and others explained the law to the people, while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense, so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then, on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. 
And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills, bring in olive branches, wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it's written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this holy assembly which you built into the society of Israel. We thank you, Lord, that you taught them to set aside such a week. And Father, we worship you for your mercy to us as we have set aside this week, as we have come before you to come before the open scriptures. Father, we see that though we have simply followed you to do this thing, it so reflects your word and your purpose there. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that as we give attention to your word, that something of what was in the depths of your heart when you ordained such a festival might be our experience together now. Father, we are your beloved children, and we ask now in Jesus' name, according to your promise, that the Holy Spirit might now come upon not only me as I speak, but upon each one of us as we listen, that we may all be taught of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's theme is becoming a people, or we could call it establishing a community, because here the chapter we've read and one or two further references we'll be looking at isn't to do with how we battle with our foes, but how we begin to come together. You know, sometimes it's when the battle begins to fade that we begin to find problems within. When we're no longer cast against a common enemy, we begin to find problems with one another. When the enemy's out there, it doesn't matter who's next to you as we're putting the, the sword up and we're working with the trowel, but when the enemy isn't coming any longer, we happen to notice you didn't do that brick very well. You just dropped your trowel on my foot. We didn't notice while the enemy was there, but when things quieten down, other tests come to us. And we've got to learn to become an established community. And there are some five things we're going to look at this evening to see what makes for a strong community. And they must be reflected in every church here. The first thing is this lovely phrase that recurs in the chapter we read. In the first verse, all the people gathered 
as one man. The first thing then is fervent determination to be one people. Fervent determination to be one people. You find it in the same chapter, verse 12. All the people went away to eat and to drink. It doesn't say some of them said, no, look, it's too serious. We mustn't do that. The word came, look, don't be overwhelmed. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So they all went. They all came to listen. Then they all went. And then when they discovered in the word that they were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, it says the entire assembly did it. It doesn't say some zealous ones did it and some thought it wasn't such a good idea. No, the entire assembly, terrific unity of purpose, laid hold of this people. And that must be the characteristic of our churches as we bring restoration to birth. This has been one of the tragedies. This is why we need restoration, because this is a missing ingredient, that we should be one loving people. I want us quickly to look at some of the enemies of unity. Just to knock off some of them. Look at it very practically. The first one that that comes to mind as I think of what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 14 is rather unexpectedly first on his list. He says that the people who disqualify themselves are the first to break the unity. Listen, he says this, the foot cannot say because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. He's saying that there are those of us who say, well look, I'm only a foot. No one notices me. I wish I was a hand. I could be far more seen. But he says, that one who says, well, I'm no problem to unity, really. I'm just a nobody. Of course I'm no problem. I'm nothing. When Paul is beginning to talk about this oneness and unity in the body of Christ, this is the very first one he comes to. He says, the one who says, I've got nothing. I'm a nobody. He is the first cause of disunity. Now we need to be provoked by that because we always think it's the other way around. We think, well, it's the pride pe- proud people who are cause of disunity. Well, Paul in his list, the very first one, is the one who says, oh, I don't matter. I'm a nobody. I've got nothing. We bring disunity when we have that attitude because a dead member is disunited when we're talking about a living body. He says, I'm not part of this living body. And he frustrates the grace of God in the whole. And so Paul says, beware of saying, well, I'm nobody. I'm just a foot. I wish I was a hand, but I'm not, so I'm nobody. Now that brings disunity when we let that come to rest in ourselves because we begin to take a back seat and we begin to often become just those who are looking on and then those who are looking on find it very easy to criticize because they're not part of the battle. They're up there in the terraces. They know they haven't got skill, at least that's the way they think, so they stand back and they point out the errors of others. That's the temptation. That's the temptation. Now, it's very often very humble people who feel that way, that they've got nothing, but it's a temptation area. And Paul is saying, look, be united by finding your place in the body and be thoroughly fulfilled. Then, of course, in the same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 14, he does swing to the other side. Those people who are self-important do bring disunity. People who are full of themselves. People who say, well, I don't need others. People who, when you're in conversation, are just waiting for you to finish your bit so they can say some more. 
And you sense that it doesn't matter what you said because they're getting ready with their next bit. And that whenever you share them some news, they've got some news to, to trump that. Now, we want to be ready to hear, ready to hear, ready and interested in other people's, not trumping one another's news. Not saying, look, I've got something more. So we had tremendous time in our tent. Oh, yes, well, we had so many saved in ours. We had this. Saying, really, I'm not in the slightest bit interested in what happened to you. I want you to know what happened to me. That offends. That, that hurts. That stops the unity of the body, the self-important. So I asked the Lord, well, what practical things bring disunity? I felt God said to me this, the fearful who will not confront bring disunity. Let's ask God to give us courage. When we know that someone else is offending us continually and we feel that perhaps they're even sinning against God, those who will not confront, they're frightened to say, look, brother, you shouldn't do that, but they feel it in their hearts. They bring disunity by not confronting. Because the temptation is that you'll hear somebody else who thinks that that brother, that sister is off. And because you haven't confronted and they say, have you noticed what she does, you're suddenly in a position where you have to say, yes, I have. Whereas if you found grace from God and say, Lord, help me through my fears. I must speak to my sister. I must speak to my brother. The person who is so fearful that they never confront is very vulnerable to become a divisive person or someone who will take part in another person's divisiveness. And so one of the ways we overcome disunity is to find love and courage and the grace to confront others and say, brother, sister, don't you think you ought to change this? The Bible says exhort one another every day. That we should admonish one another. It's part of becoming a people. Now we never had to do it when we were just strangers in cold church life who hardly knew one another in the congregation. But if we're going to try to become a true people, a community, a family, we have got to find the grace of God to do that kind of thing. To be able to confront by overcoming our own fears, our fear of being rejected by them if we speak. Let's by God's grace, grow up in this dimension and be more and more able to receive correction and give correction if we're going to become a very powerful army. I honestly believe that until we get into this dimension at depth, we shall not become a mighty force. Leaders must certainly be able to do it. Elders in a local church must certainly be able to do it. They must be able to confront one another with love, and say, brother, you mustn't do this, or brother, do we really feel that's the line we should take? We must confront. If brothers in leadership don't do that, they will be picked off by the flock who can see differences. Unity, then, will be maintained only as with great grace and love we confront one another and say, brother, sister, we must see this thing through. We must change it. If we don't get into that dimension, we are very brittle and in great danger if we're touched. The unforgiving are another company who prevent true unity. Those who hold things in their hearts. This is perhaps so obvious that I don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but just to say this, that Christians may have many faults, but they should excel at forgiving that you should be brilliant at it. We should all be magnificent forgivers. 
Even if we fail in other areas, we may not be able to sing very well. As it says in our songbook, I expect you noticed yesterday that all our sings should be forgiven. <laughs> I thought of one or two people I knew at the time. <laughs> we may not be able to sing very well, but we should be brilliant at forgiving because we have all been forgiven. If we are not very good at forgiving, I mean very good, then it's questionable whether we really know the grace of God. We ought to be very good at it. It's easy to get forgiveness from one another. Another person who breaks unity is the legalist. The one who lives by the rules and condemns those who don't. He breaks unity. He's, he's very tight on himself. He lives by a very cl close rule book and he, having been diligent to do that to himself, is very offended by others who are freer. He spoils the unity. We're told quite plainly in one, in, beg pardon, in Romans and chapter 14 that we are not to be like that. We are not to bring judgments on other people's liberty, nor are we to bring judgments on other people's tightness in terms of obedience to the Word of God. There's got to be a willingness to let a man stand before his God in that sense. We can talk the thing through, but we mustn't condemn one another. The legalist brings disunity. Another person who brings disunity in the local work is the watchdog. The one who's in there to make sure the pastor doesn't take it too far. The one who's there to make sure we don't go overboard in this thing. He's not going to leave, but I feel I'm there by God's appointment, you see. That's the idea. We're there to just safe this, safeguard this thing from going too far. Such a man just brings disunity. He feels he's serving God, but he's spoiling the onward march of that local church. Now these are some of the enemies of unity. We've got to be willing to lose our individualism. Now I don't say lose our identity. God wants a great diversity of identity. God wants a beautiful, beautiful cross-section, all sorts of different personalities and skills and gifts. God doesn't want you to lose your identity, but God does want you to submit your individualism. Otherwise, we shall never, never become this mighty force God wants us to be. Can I ask you, have you yielded that individualism? Or do you always demand that it must be explained to you? You've got to be satisfied. You say, well, I obey the Lord and I obey the word, brother. And the church said, we're going this way. Will you, will you be involved? Will you give your heart? He said, well, I'll see if God tells me to. And those who are continually wanting to judge everything in that very defensive, very individualistic way. Are you such a person? If you are, you are frustrating that unity which God wants. By all means, talk out difficulties, but don't be all the time defensive, holding your ground. Be willing to lose your life in order that you might find it. Sometimes our very zeal for God can be condemning to others. Our very zeal, come on, we ought to be praying more. And all the time, our zeal is making other people go down and down and down. And in the end, they feel that they're only valued by what they can do. 
They're only valued in that local church if they turn up at the prayer meeting. They're not valued as people. They're not beloved and precious. God wants us to be genuinely rejoicing in one another, full of forgiveness and grace. Not pressurizing. Not so you ought to be doing more. Because that becomes a works thing. Then we begin to make the whole church have a feeling of how much you can put in. That's not what we're after at all. We're looking for a unity that's all-embracing, loving, accepting. Not condemning, but bringing us through true grace and forgiveness. Will you be determined then in your local work to be of one heart? It's the priority of the New Testament. I could quote you verse after verse after verse in epistle after epistle in the words of our Lord Jesus. It's Paul's continual plea to the churches that they should be one. He says strive for unity. Work for it. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent. It's a very powerful word. Keep boiling. Be, be fervent in love. Don't say, oh, oh I put up with him. Say, I'm very loving. No, keep fervent, fervent in your love. Are we, are we taking that word? We looked the other day about our hearts growing, growing weary and we don't hear what it says. It says, be fervent in our love to one another. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.10, perfectly joined together in one mind and judgment. People say, worst of these sort of churches, you all have to think the same. That's what Paul expected. That is exactly what he expected. It's not a mark that we've all become so submissive that we're not allowed to think here. No, we can arrive at that with joy and faith and wholeheartedness. It is New Testament teaching perfectly joined together in one mind and one judgment, all thinking the same thought. In other words, all agreeing. That is the thrust. That is the way. We bring our individual contribution like the beautiful orchestra has done. But they're not all playing their own idea. They are coming together in this with one heart and one mind. Will you do that? It's got to be a determined effort to do that. It means that whenever we're offended, we, we, determine, we arm ourselves with an attitude that says, I will not be offended. It's one of those areas where we've got to make sure our, our shields are gold and not Kellogg's cornflakes, as Alan said to us. Not just cardboard. We've got to say, I will not be offended. I'm not going to be. I put up this shield of love. I'm not going to let it happen. It's determined purpose to press through with this. And so this very lovely statement, all the people, the entire congregation, the leader said, let's do this, and they did it. I was so thrilled recently as we did some door-to-door evangelism at home, we said, right, the, the, the Wednesday night house groups go out one night, the Thursday house groups go out the next night, and there we were on the streets, scores and scores from the church, the whole church, as far as I understand, out. On those nights, not the whole company. People say, "Who are all these crowds walking down the street?" Because they didn't say, "We didn't say, uh, if you'd like to uh, think about this, might let's let's do it." And as we saw with the building yesterday, they had a mind to work, so we went. When we become so united like that, we should be such a force to be reckoned with. That unity. And then the second thing I see in this building of a community 
is the place given to understanding God's word. Understanding. Did you notice in the reading? All who could listen with understanding. All those who could understand. Then they explained the law so that they could understand. Unity and zeal are not enough without an understanding of this book. We need to understand that Ezra is a restoration figure. It's not just prophets, not just apostles, but teachers of the book are restoration figures. We are not simply into renewal. We're not simply into something you call charismatic renewal. We're not simply talking about speaking in tongues, singing in the Spirit. We're talking about recovery. We're talking about coming back to this book and teaching what it actually says. And so these restoration people came back and they said, now let us bow to the authority of this book. That is our plea all the time. We're not after some new thing. We're after restoring what God said in the beginning. And so we will be very much Bible-centered. There's got to be a strong, strong emphasis, not just on what some people call body meetings with little exhortations. And some lost out in the early days on that. Some could see some of the perils of the one-man ministry who just brought teaching every week and we were just pew fodder listening. We saw some of the dangers of that. And so we said, no, we don't believe in one-man ministry. We believe in body ministry where we all have a go. And some churches, as a result of that, just lived on a diet of little blessed thoughts. I remember attending one once where, after a terrific time of praise, one brother opened the word. Well, he didn't really open the word. He stood up and he said, let's be real, brothers. And uh, he gave a little five-minute word on being real. And then we had a bit more praise. And then another brother got up, and this is honestly true. He went on and said, let's be really real. <laughs> now, in the end, you cannot live on a diet of exhortation to be really real. And some have said, well, we mustn't be all the time into the Bible. Just be yourself, man, in the Spirit. See? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just let it, don't get into this too much. Just be yourself. Live from your Spirit. Now, I see these restoration people weren't like that. They said, bring in Ezra. They didn't say, here comes Ezra. He's just a scribe. You watch us restoration people. No, they said, bring him right in. Build up a, a proper podium, put him in the middle, and you listen to what the Word of God says. Some want to say the charismatics don't give place to the Word of God. I want to say this. Most of the churches I'm related to have about an hour's preaching of the Word of God. Give great place to the Word of God. We've got to give great place to the Word of God. With understanding says in Hosea, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. If they'd understood, they wouldn't have got into captivity. If they'd understood. But they didn't understand. They didn't give attention. Look, Jesus came as a teacher sent from God. He went everywhere teaching the kingdom. He said, I see the crowds like sheep without a shepherd. And it doesn't say, and then he went and healed them. He said, seeing the crowds like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion and taught them many things. He taught them. I remember being in a cathedral in Barcelona many years ago. I went to visit my, my, my sister who was a missionary out there 
and uh, I just had a little time before catching the plane home, and I was sitting just in the cathedral, I was looking around, and a very frail, dear old lady came in, dressed in black, very bent over, and she, she came over and she, she bought a candle and she lit it and she put it in front of the statue and she put a veil over her head and she sat there and look up, looked up at the statue. And I thought of the words of Jesus. There must have been many things that lady needed. She was poor. She was evidently bent over. But I thought the thing she needs more than anything else is this, that someone teach her many things. Jesus says we've got to be taught. And we notice not only did he teach during his life ministry, those three years, but we find that even when he rose from the dead, he didn't just turn up and say, here I am, fellas, I'm back. That wasn't it. He said, he opened the scriptures. It says, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he spoke to them again and again of all the things concerning himself. It wasn't enough just to appear. He taught them, taught them, taught them, taught them. The apostles were taught or, or brought to task by their opponents, not for filling Jerusalem with their miracles, but by filling Jerusalem with their teaching. Day and night. Paul says, I taught you day and night. I'm sure you've read, isn't it Acts 20, where Paul is preaching on into the night, until the young boy falls out of the window. Have you noticed how? I mean, he's preaching till so late, this boy just falls out of the window. They go down, they raise him up from the dead, take him upstairs. Have you noticed how it finishes? Paul continued till the morning. <laughs> it is evident that the man had a great passion, not just to have a great big praise meeting, not just to give them, be real, brothers. Not just to say, well, just live from your spirit. He spent all night. And he says, writing later on, I taught you day and night. There's so much truth I had to get hold of. Some have said, of course, the New, Christ New Testament Christians didn't have a Bible. They may not have had a Bible. They had apostles who taught them all night and all day. They had others teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. We must give place to this word of God. We will never become a mature society unless we give ourselves to this book. That's God's way. Why? Well, to save us from error, both new and old. The Bible says in the last days there will come doctrines of demons. There will come strange new doctrines and people with itching ears will go after them. We need to know this book so that we won't get into those things. There will come all sorts of strange doctrines in the end. There are many abroad today. We need to be clear in here so that we're not vulnerable, not taken in by a few signs and wonders. Many shall do signs and wonders. We must be men of the book so that we are safeguarded from new strange doctrines. Also, so that we may be delivered from old strange doctrines. Jesus said to the men of his day, you have a fine way of disregarding the word of God that you might keep your own traditions. And we need to bring every tradition in our church life to this book and say, is it in the book? And if it isn't in the book, why are we doing it? 
That's what God's looking for. It's obeying this word. It's not just being a new sort of people who like to do it different. It's bringing things to this word and saying, is this how it should be? And so we need to be safeguarded from error. We need the truth to make us free. It's the truth that makes us free. There may be those who need to be freed from all kinds of evil power. But the normal way we get free is through the truth of God's word. You should know the truth. The truth frees you. That's what God has said. The truth releases us. By knowing it, we're freed. Paul says, don't you know, you who have died with Christ are freed from sin. But many of us don't know it. Paul would be amazed. He says, don't you know? We need to know what Paul is arguing, for instance, in, through Romans. What happened to us when Jesus died? What happened to us when we were united to him in his death and resurrection? That's what makes us free and many of us condemned because we don't know. We don't know we've been delivered from the law. Many of us are in, we think, well, am I free from this? Am I still supposed to be obeying that law? We don't know. Why? Because we haven't given ourselves to this truth. We come to worship. We're just about to praise and the devil starts condemning us. And because we don't know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're vulnerable. We're knocked about. It's because we don't know. With understanding, we have to give ourselves to this word. It makes us free. It brings us to maturity. That word of God, which is able to build you up, make you strong. We won't be strong without it. It gives us faith. And therefore, it gives us victory. This is the victory that overcomes even your faith. This is how faith comes, through the Word of God. The Word of God is so central to restoration. And so in our individual lives and in our church life, we must give ourselves to this. I'm so grateful for this kind of book which Nigel referred to us earlier on. Books that will help us to seriously get hold of the truth of God into our lives, to work at it, to make it part of us. That's what's needed. We can't take these things lightly. The Word of God will inspire a true knowledge of God. This is eternal life, to know Him. We need to know some of the objective things about Him, some of the propositions of this book, so we know about Him. There is also an intuitive knowledge by the Spirit, which reveals Him to us. But this book tells us wonderful things about God. We wouldn't know what the cross meant unless this book explained it to us. Many people have got all sorts of sentimental ideas about what the cross means. Those events in history are only understood as we understand what God says about those events. The whole matter of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many have got all sorts of strange ideas. If we read what the book says, we see about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see what church worship is meant to be like. We see about apostles and prophets. It's in the book. If we're obedient to this book, we'll get it right. If we're obedient to church tradition, we'll be in terrible problems. If we say, what does the book say? Does the book suggest that apostles should stop? Does the book definitely say there are only 12? No, it doesn't. Nowhere does it say it. And we need to bow in our restoration and recovery and reformation. The reformation that we call the reformation was just the beginning God is wanting us to reform, get it right, get it right. So we need to give ourselves to this book with understanding. 
And not only with understanding so that we can argue, but with conviction. It says when they saw it, when they read it, they themselves were broken down by this book. They wept. We don't want to just get a lot of knowledge because knowledge puffs up. We must bow to this book. We must honor its authority. Submit ourselves to its overall authority. And so there was understanding with conviction. True conviction. And then also there was understanding with comfort. Hallelujah. The word brings such comfort. And in that comfort is, now don't weep. There is more truth you can know. And this truth that you can know will actually bring you into joy. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Some of us have only got enough of news from this book to make us miserable. Keep reading. And it will bring you through to joy. And that's how this story goes. We haven't time in the whole of Nehemiah to underline every statement. It would be lovely to bring a whole evening on the joy of the Lord is your strength. But here we're told that the first impact of that book was to bring conviction. The second word that came to was, don't be overwhelmed. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word of God brings us such comfort, such joy. So we must give place to this book. Let me ask you, in your church and fellowship, do you give strong attention to the word of God? Is it seriously taught to you? Preachers, do you seriously work at it or do you just bring a few blessed thoughts? We've got to teach it, teach it. Don't put your ideas into it. Let it speak for itself. Some want to take us through a magical mystery tour. And when they finish, you think, gosh, I wish I knew the Bible like that. They get so much out of it. Actually, it's not they get anything out of it. They put it all into it. Let it speak for itself. Let it come off the page and speak it. And God will bless that. He has, down through the ages. Understanding God's word. Then the third thing that I see built into their restoration was the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. First of all, they said, let's be one. Let's be as one people with all our hearts. Secondly, they said, let's submit ourselves utterly to this book. Let's put it in such a central place that it has absolute sway over us. Then thirdly, they said, look what it says. It says that for a week in the seventh month, we should set aside that time to live in booths. And so they went and uh, they cut down these large branches and trees and they made sort of tents. And for a week, they went and lived in the tents. It's all in the book, you know. That's why we have it in July, Alan says, the seventh month. You don't put it into the book, you get it out of the book. <laughs> it makes the other Bible weeks a bit suspect, but never mind. <laughs> One of them's half inspired and then shops halfway through, of course. <laughs> What were they doing as they did this? They were remembering their true identity. They were saying, we are a people whose identity has to do with the fact that we're pilgrims. And although they were building the city, and we're aware that we're building, we don't want a Christianity that is 
without a sense of foundation. We, as Ron Trudinger has put it, are wanting to build to last. Yes, they were building. They were no longer in the wilderness. They were building the city, but they had to hold in tension these two things, that even while you're building something that looks as though it will stand, at the same time you remember, it's not my home eventually. We're still a pilgrim people. We are actually still moving on. Our whole identity is wrapped up in this, that we were redeemed from slavery through shed blood. We are going on to a glorious possession, a glorious destiny. And when every time they came and celebrated that Feast of Tabernacles, that's what they were remembering. That actually, though we are wanting to build substantially, our eyes are still on a glorious, glorious future. It was like, truly, a glorious Bible week. The people all coming together in tents. There's something quite magnificent about it. We just remember that we're a, we're a people whose roots are somewhere else whose hope is somewhere else, and that we're here temporarily. That's what the tent says to you, doesn't it? I saw one that blew down last night. <laughs> it's very temporary. That's what this is saying. The whole thing is temporary. We're building for security, but we're still... God could call any one of us any time. Isn't that right? Let's make it good. Let's make the foundation good. But let's remember this. God could say, I've... I'm taking you now. Say, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Not, Lord, but I'm so committed to this. How are they going to get by without me now? God just said, come on. You say, oh, Lord, that's what I wanted. Really, that's where my eye was. To be with him, which is far better, Paul says, who says, I'm still trying to build a foundation that will last, but really his hope is on something bigger. To have that sense that we have been delivered, as Paul says in Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself to deliver us out of this present age. Have you been delivered out of this present age? Not just delivered from sin and guilt and punishment, but delivered out, out of this present age. Really out of it, in your spirit. And it says quite plainly that let those of us who have dealings with this world, be as though we had no dealings with it. We saw that on the other evening. That we may still stay in our career, but we're very conscious that that isn't what motivates my life anymore. We have dealings with the world. We have to work so that we might eat. But we are not any longer dominated by that. We have dealings with it. As, but are as though we had no dealings with it. We're living in tents. That is to be our lifestyle. And they little, and this week in the year, they, they enacted out the reality of it. Though they were so excited about what they were building, they acted out the fact it's all temporary, really. Hallelujah. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let this world press in on you. Scriptures say this, the night is almost gone. The day's at hand. It's nearly gone. Paul said that in his day. John wrote similarly. It's almost gone. It's though after creation, Adam fell. And that lovely day became black night. 
And down through the ages has been a black, black night. And then Jesus came, that day star. And Jesus is going to come again. And it won't just be a star, it'll be the Son of God coming with glory. And the skies will fill with his glory and all the angels and all the redeemed will come. And that day is near at hand. The night's nearly gone. That dark, dark night, God's had to look down on it. He's seen suffering and sin and agony. And he's looked at that dark night down through the ages. And he's longed for that day. And we're to be those who are children of the day, of the light, not of the night. Let's not get taken up with something that's going to go in a moment of time. It all looks so substantial. But God says that when Babylon falls, in one hour she's gone. And people say, where, where is it? It's gone, it's gone. We mustn't feel overwhelmed by this society. Feel, I'm just the odd one out. I'm the only Christian here, I'd better conform. I heard a prophecy recently, and God said in that prophecy, do not feel that you're the lost separate one. Understand this, you are my child, and the crowd around you is desolate. You have all heaven behind you. The crowd is desolate and lost. You have all heaven around you. And the day is about to break. Live like that. Make your decisions like that. Make your decisions about work, how you use your money, how you move house. Remember, it's a passing age. Don't get caught up in it. The night's nearly gone. The day's at hand. It's about to break forth. And it's so near now, surely. We see what's happening around the world today. We see this international, worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's hailing and preparing the way for His coming. It's nearly gone. Why give our lives to lesser things? It's folly. Absolute folly. Let's remember, as we live in these tents, oh God, soon you're just going to remove this tent and give me a substantial building in the heavens. Hallelujah. That's where our hope lies, beloved. And some of us have a very tough life. Some of us find it very hard here. Let's remember this. Our hope is in glory. That's where the, even now we prophesy, but we prophesy in part. We sometimes get it wrong. We know some lovely things, but we only know in part. One day, what we see at the moment, partially, through a mirror, darkly, we shall know, even as we're known. It's wonderful with the little bit we know. It's turned my life around completely and yours. Just a little, we've got little pinpricks in the darkness about Jesus and how little we know him. How little we know him. I remember recently I heard a tape of Tozer's. I've never heard Tozer on tape before. His writings devastate me. I thought, a tape of Tozer. And it was on Isaiah chapter 6. I thought, oh, Isaiah 6. I wonder if I'm ready to bear this tape. I really did. I thought, put it on a pray first. Am I ready to hear Tozer on Isaiah 6? I'd never heard the man before. And it was quite amazing. I put it on. And this lovely man of God begins to speak. He says, tonight I'm going to speak about the holiness of God. He says, he said something like this. I'm a fool, really. No one should speak about it. We know nothing about it. He says. 
terrific. We know nothing about it. That great prophetic giant of a man said, he said, I'm a fool to speak about it. I know nothing about it. Beloved, we know little pinprick and it's changed us, it's devastated us. What will it be when we see it? That's what we're heading for. And in moments of worship, we catch a glimpse of that, don't we? But let's live in the light of it. Let's remember that the whole of our life, not just the Bible week, but the whole of our life, if God's given us a good house, praise your name, Lord, but it's a tent, really. God, if you've blessed us, if you've blessed us in material provision, thank you, Lord, for your mercy, but it's a tent. I'll hold it lightly, because one day you've got a, a house made for me in heaven. And though we want to build substantially now, Though we want to make it work now, we want Zion to stand now, remember our true goal is there. That's another thing that gave them their identity. It made them what they're meant to be. That's what will make us so different to the world when that really grips us. Not just we've got a successful church, but we think absolutely differently because we have no fear of death. And we're looking forward to meeting Jesus. The fourth thing that I see in the story takes us forward a chapter or two. As I said the other evening, we can't read all the chapters, but we find in chapter 9, and I encourage you to read it yourself, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. It is a most wonderful prayer, and it's a prayer which brings this aspect to their identity, a sense of history. A sense of history, divine history. It's so important that we understand how God has worked through the ages. Sometimes to hear charismatics pray, you think that God only started five years ago. Many of us have got no grasp of what God has been doing through the ages. Often our prayer times and praise times reflect that. We're always saying, oh, thank you, love, what you're doing today. That's great to be able to pray a, like, pray a prayer like that. It's thrilling that we're not just living in the past. <laughs> but I want us to see this. God hasn't only just turned up. We've got a wonderful, wonderful heritage and if we want to know our identity, one of the things about having identity is knowing where your roots are. And we need to be a people aware of our church history. That is one of the reasons why night after night here, in the main, we have held up biographies. And when I was first saved, I lived on a diet of biographies. That was before the charismatic awakening when we were fed with these more uh, charismatic paperbacks about the latest thing, which have been very thrilling. But I believe we need to rediscover the great giants of church history. I thank God for men like Hudson Taylor. What a mighty man. I mentioned the other evening the five great reformers that C.J. Uh, Ryle wrote about. These reformers, the great, the great evangelical awakening men, Jonathan Edwards, George, you've got a terrific family tree. Do you know about them? Study it. Get into it. Rub shoulders with giants. Even the Pentecostal awakening of this century produced giants such as we've not seen yet. 
Let's humble ourselves about that. Let's not think, oh, we're it. This is the charismatic awakening. The world's been waiting for this for generations. You read what the Jeffreys brothers did about 50 years ago. They went into a town, preached for two weeks. So many people got saved and healed, there was another church. That's true. In this century. And in other centuries, these great, great men of God do read the biographies. Do search them out. Read about these great men like Hudson Taylor who believed for China. He walked along on Brighton Beach and he wrestled with God. Can I believe that if I go there and I encourage others to follow me, can I believe God will provide for them? And this ordinary man wrestled with God and believed in the end for thousands of missionaries and thousands of pounds to follow them to break open a great nation. Wonderful men. They're our forefathers. We need to have a, an awareness of that, and not just then, to, but to plant right back into the early church fathers. Athanasius, Ignatius, Polycarp, this man who said, uh, when he was 80 years of age, they said, just deny Christ and we won't kill you. He said, these 80 years, I have found him true and faithful. Why should I deny him now? And he marched off to his death. That's our background. We need to know about terrific men and women of God and see the history. That's what they did in this prayer in Nehemiah 9. They reflected on their history. And beloved, when we get back past recent church history, what we are enjoying now, we'll feel very much at home with. We find we've got difficulties with some of our recent church history, the church history of the 50s and the 60s and this generation. But you look back to what Ian Murray calls the Puritan hope and see what their vision was, you'll feel very much at home with that because it's our hope. It's what we're preaching. And you'll find, hey, these men were saying the same things as us. Look what the Anabaptists went through. Hey, they'd be at home in our meetings. We would have been at home in theirs. They got thrown out of their church building. We will find such oneness with them. Do look into your church history. Read it up. Read the Pilgrim Church by Broadbent. Look at these men. Get excited about it. You've got an identity. You're part of that. It will strengthen you. And then the last thing. We've seen, first of all, their loving unity. We've seen, secondly, the place they gave to understanding the doctrine. Thirdly, they celebrated this Feast of Tabernacles. They said, we're only here temporarily. We're going to glory. We're going to rule the heavens and the earth. We've got a wonderful destiny. We want to build the church properly now, but we're never going to be taken up with the fact that this is everything. Then lastly, this other thing that expressed their wonderful unity. If you turn over to Nehemiah chapter 12, there are many pages of lists of names that I'm not going to bless your ears with. But in Nehemiah chapter 12, we find they came, in verse 27, to the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. 
Hallelujah. And then we see in verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up to the top of the wall, and I appointed two great thanksgiving choirs. And then in verse 43, well, first of all, just to know that in that passage it says how he set up the two choirs on top of the walls. Incidentally, the walls that Tobiah said, if even a fox ran up, it would all fall down. Oh, you note the triumph in this. Choirs standing on them, great choirs with cymbals and harps. They're going to march round these walls. They're going to say, look at our identity. These walls that would never stand, that were just dust and rubble. We're marching on them. Hallelujah. And then it says, as they come to the end of this march, in verse 43, on that day they offered a great sacrifice, great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. This is going to be one of the notes of the church in the end time. It should have been right down through the ages. It's what God ever planned for his church. But this is what God is looking for in our restoration, that we should see these great choirs emerging we should see triumphant praise. We are the true circumcision, Paul says, and he's trying to think of some way to describe the true church. Now, he could have said, we are the true circumcision who believe in the atonement. That would have been very fair. He could say, we are the true circumcision who put our trust in this. No, he says, now, how can I first express it? We are the true circumcision who... who... Put no confidence in the flesh. Glory in Christ Jesus. But the very first thing he says is this. Who worship God by the Spirit. So if you're coming to a town and you're saying, I wonder where those who are the true circumcision are. I wonder where the true church of God is in this town. This is the way you identify it according to Paul in Philippians. He says, this is the true people of God. They're worshipping by the Spirit. That's what marks them out. It's one of the identifiable things about them. It doesn't say who are true in doctrine, though that's of course as important as we've been saying all evening. He says this is the thing you look for. They're worshipping by the Spirit. Because worshipping by the Spirit is the result of a lot of other things being right. It means battles have been fought. It means love and unity has come forth. Worshipping by the Spirit isn't easily got into a local church. Fights, battle... Love, work, be committed. That's how you come through to worship in the Spirit. It's not overnight. People have wept to get to there. And when you come to a church where there's a true manifestation of worship in the Spirit, you can say, these are the true people of God. You've got biblical warrant for that. It's part of our identity. It's part of our becoming the people of God. God wants us to be filled with praise. There they were with this great orchestra. I was longing to see a church with a harp in it. I found it in the church at Paris that Joel and Gordon come from. Lovely to actually see the harp. We've seen practically everything else now, praise the Lord. I thank God for all this, don't you? Amen. Three years ago, I think it was, Phil said to me, can we um, not just have a piano and organ, 
but begin to have a few more instruments. I said, no, I don't think it's necessary, Phil. <laughs> I'm glad he prevailed, aren't you? And, and we've seen more and more, and the whole thing's filling out. I remember the very first Sunday that Pam turned up with her cymbals at Clarendon Church. We were singing a hymn, and I just saw along the line, I saw this light sort of flash. I thought, what's that? And she, she hadn't spoken to me about it. It wasn't a heavenly visitation. It was two great big cymbals coming out of a shopping bag. <laughs> I thought, what is this? And we were singing one of those magnificent old hymns like we sang tonight and the other evening. It was something like, praise the Lord, his glory show. And she went, <laughs> And at the end of every line, there was this, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> there are some instruments that speak of the majesty of God. Yeah, and old harmoniums are one of them. <laughs> God is looking for a beautiful, beautiful orchestra. This should be repeated in church after church after church. Hasn't it been a joy to us? Oh, I've been so thrilled to be involved in it. And some of those, not just the new songs, magnificent old hymns, you suddenly think, now I understand what Isaac Watts was on about. The whole thing filled out. Filled out. God is worthy of all our inventiveness, our skills, our beauty. It thrills me to see young people in our churches learning to play the instruments. We shall need more next year, beloved. If we go for two weeks next year, as we expect to, we shall want two choir, two orchestras, one for each week. So stick, stick at those instruments. Don't watch television every night. Get in there and work with your instrument. Local churches, make room for this. Let people come in and say, what is this? The music. Dave Mansell was here for the first night and we were singing one of these wonderful new songs with all its intricacies and beauty. He said to me, in his own inimitable fashion, it's a bit better than I'm H-A-P-P-Y, isn't it? <laughs> Alan, Alan was telling me that when they had an open air recently in the, what, in the, the, the town centre in Watford, in the shopping area, they were just singing like we sing here. But we're singing, of course, with the different parts and the whole thing. And people stopped. They said, what is this? Are you a trained choir? He said, no, we're just the congregation of the local church. God is filling out our worship. It is becoming more worthy of him. It's not just, it saddens me if I'm ever in a church these days and we just go through a dull hymn and you see the poor people halfway through the last verse closing their book, putting it down, getting ready. I stand in the pulpit, I think, what is this? And they're bored with it, singing magnificent truths, magnificent truths. Bored. 
one of the great things God is restoring to his church. Wonderful, beautiful worship. Beware of professionalism, some might say. Yes, let's beware of it. Let's be careful. We need... <laughs> I'm getting body ministry behind me here. <laughs> we do need to see the dangers. We've seen the way... But there are many dangers. It's dangerous going to work. It's dangerous crossing the road. It seems to me that Christians, if you can say there's a danger there, you don't get anywhere near it. If we applied the same principle, we'd never go out of our house. Much is dangerous. There is a danger now with so many instruments we could lose the spontaneity of the Spirit. We notice that danger. We pray fervently before we come over here. God, help us to be in the Spirit. We will watch it. We will be careful. Pray for one another. But let's have all that God has for us. Observe the danger and then go through it with strength. That's how we should cope with the whole life of the Spirit in the local church. People say it's very dangerous. Yes, it's very dangerous. Hallelujah. Isn't life demanding? Isn't it exciting? Let's go through with it. Not just back off because it's dangerous. I found that the church was like that. I thank God. I heard Dennis Clark years ago when we were talking about the European community and some were saying, let's pray against it. Let's pray against England getting involved. The awful thing about what might happen to England if we got involved. He said, well, what, hap- what, what might happen to the other nations if we get involved? Why are we always frightened of what might happen to us? Why aren't we more positive? Why aren't we more confident that we can go through? So let's look at this wonderful music and go right on into it. There's much more to learn yet. God will teach us much more about released prophetic praise. And then it says in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 3, the joy of Jerusalem, beg pardon, 43, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. The joy was heard from afar. Acts 15 says, I will restore the tabernacle of David. Why? So that the nations might come. That's why God's restoring this tabernacle. It explains here that they were restoring the praise and worship of David. And uh, for in the days of David, verse 46 of chapter 12, David and Asaph in ancient times had leaders of songs and praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. He says, we were restoring what David said would happen. And in Acts chapter 15, as they're summing up what's happened, They say prophetically, God says in Amos, he will restore the tabernacle of David. Why? So that the the heathen will draw in. And it's when the heathen hear our praise, they will take notice, they will, our joy will be heard afar off. Is your church like that? Let's just tick these things off in reality. Are we fervently loving one another? That's, one of, that's the first thing. They were one heart. The entire assembly. You should be in a church where you can say, I am happy with this. I'll be part of the entire assembly. I will not keep standing back. I'll be part of it. If it isn't like that, find somewhere where you can be wholehearted. Don't be forever the judge standing on the edge. Get in there. Get committed. Understanding God's word. 
You're in a place where true place is given to the teaching of the word. Do you make sure you're learning it yourself? Understanding God's ways. Are you free from this world? He's saying, Lord, we are a covenant community whose eyes are on glory. We're going to glory. That's our true home. Our citizenship's in heaven. That's what we're looking for. Then we've got a sense of history. We rejoice in our history in God. It gives us a sense of roots. And then lastly, this triumphant praise. This should characterize every church. It's not a small thing. It's one of the things the devil has fought and fought and fought in local churches. All kinds of battles about whether the worship can be released. Why? Because the devil hates Jesus being wholeheartedly worshipped. It's put down to all sorts of things. Well, people won't like it. We don't, we don't feel we could do that. But behind it all is our enemy, the devil, who doesn't want Jesus wholeheartedly worshipped. Because out of wholehearted worship comes such an awareness of God. Faith grows. Holiness develops. Principalities and powers tremble and flee. There's so much wrapped up in wholehearted worship. This is what God wants in all our churches. And this week is just another exhortation and encouragement to press on into this community, becoming the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you took these piles of rubbish and you made them strong enough to march on. Those who laughed and mocked and said it will never come to anything. Oh God, we wonder what must have gone through Nehemiah's heart as he looked at those dancing, praising, shouting choirs. Oh God, we do thank you for what you've done thus far. We thank you that, Lord, that which some of us were told was a passing phenomenon 15 years ago is now drawing thousands and internationally millions. The walls are going up. We thank you we find ourselves gathered here tonight as thousands. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for every musician. We thank you for all the disciplines brought to bear. We thank you for humble musicians willing to submit their gift. We thank you, O oh God. Oh, help us to go together with all love, a deep awareness of our identity, that you might have this worthy bride. Lord, bless us. Let your joy be in our midst. Even as we draw this meeting to a conclusion tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.